Luke chapter 18, Luke chapter 18, where we're going to be today. Let me uh, ask you this. If you, if there was something that you knew was dangerous, possibly uh, hurtful to someone's life that, that you loved dearly, that you were concerned about, and, and they didn't see it, what would you do with that information? I mean, you would go find them, right? You would go find them and you would make sure they understood the danger that is before them, the threat that is before them. But, but let's suppose this. Let's suppose that they knew what you were talking about and they were wrong, but, but, but let's suppose they just didn't think it was that big a deal. They, they just kind of dismissed it. But, but you rightly knew that they didn't understand the, 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 the magnitude of the danger that was right before them, of the situation that they faced. What would you do in that situation? I mean, you would, you'd keep talking about it, right? You'd keep bringing it up to them, and, and you, you, you would even possibly be willing to risk be, them seeing you as annoying about it, them seeing you as ang- that they would become angry, that you just won't let it go, you won't stop, you won't give it up, you know? Because there's something in you, if, if it's someone that you love and are concerned about, there's something in you that would be willing to risk knowing them or making them angry because the threat to them. You want them to thrive. You want them to succeed. You want them to do well. And you want them to understand any threat to that. And if it means being annoying, maybe you're willing to risk that. I think all of us can kind of relate to that. That that kind of makes sense to us. There's just, there's something in us that wants us to believe that we would have the courage to keep beating the drum of something that was dangerous or threatening to someone if they didn't see it, even if it meant they were annoyed or angry with us. And if, if they did get annoyed or angry with us for it, we hope at the very least, they, even if they disagreed with us, that they would at least see the heart behind what we were doing and the heart behind what we were saying, that our heart was that we wanted them to succeed and we want them to do well. We wanted them not to face the consequences of any danger that was out there. We hope that they would at least see our heart behind it. Well, we kind of get that. We understand that. But you know, when it comes to God, often we don't give Him the same grace to something like that. I mean, in other words, there's sometimes when we come and we get into Scripture and there's that thing that comes up again and again and, and either we just don't think it's that big a deal or maybe it makes us, does make us feel a little guilty or something and we don't like that feeling and, and we just want to dismiss it and, and it can come to a point that we're annoyed by it. And, and maybe we don't place the annoyment you know, on God. Maybe we place it on the church. We're just like, hey, here they go again. They're talking about that again. The preacher's going off on that again. And, and what it, we're saying is you're just... We don't see the same danger that, that they're saying is there. We don't see the same threat, and we're just kind of tired of them talking about it. And at the same time, we don't give God the grace to say, even though we don't see the danger here, we don't think that's big a deal. Hey, the great thing about it is, I know that God is telling me that through Scripture, through a heart of love and grace, and He wants us to be successful. And the reason I bring that up, because there's a, there's a possibility that your mind even though it's not what the story is about, though it seems what it's about, there's a possibility that your mind might go in that direction today. As we're going to be in Luke chapter 18, and Jesus tells us of a story of an encounter that created a conversation, and the conversation turned toward money and wealth. And, and, and let's just be honest about it. 
Jesus in the Bible has a lot to say about money and stuff. And from the Old Testament to, to Jesus, to the disciples, there's, it comes up quite a bit. I'll give you some examples. Matthew chapter 6, verse 21 says this. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Okay, you know, that's pretty good. But there's a lot of verses aren't like that when they talk about money and stuff in the Scripture. A lot of them don't have this kind of neutral, kind of, you know, inspiring kind of comment. A lot of them have a very negative content. At least that's what it, it feels like. Like verses like this. Revelations chapter 3, verse 17. You say, I am rich, I have acquired wealth, and do not need a thing. But you do not realize that you're wretched, pitiful, poor, blind, and naked. Or verses like this. Matthew chapter 6, uh, verse 24. No one can serve two masters. Either you will hate the one and love the other, or you'll be devoted to one and despise the other. You cannot serve both God and money. Or this one. Matthew chapter 19, verse 24. It actually appears two places in Scripture. We're going to look at another one today. Matthew 19, 24 says this. Again, I tell you, it's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for someone who is rich to enter the kingdom of God. And I could go on with more verses that have that same kind of feel or tone to them. And we got to admit, it kind of leaves you thinking, does Jesus dislike or hate rich people? Does God hate money and hate wealth and just has a, has, sees that as a complete distraction to our life? If so... What does that say if I want to increase my own wealth? Does that mean I want that which Jesus hates? I want that which Jesus despises? And if that's true, what does that say about me? If I want the very things, I'm a follower of Christ, but I want the things that Jesus seems to say I shouldn't want. What I hope you see today is that Jesus doesn't have a hatred toward wealth. But what is at play here is that he knows something that either we don't know or we refuse to see how serious it is. And because he loves us and he wants us to thrive, he, he, he beats that drum of warning about the proper place of wealth and money in our life, even if it annoys us. And I think God would say at the very least, if you're annoyed or angry by it, at the very least, understand the heart that is behind it. And that is, I love you so much, and I want you to thrive so much that I'm willing to constantly bang this drum. So in the story we're going to read today, and what we're doing in this series, we've been in this series for a while, and it's leading all the way up to right before Easter. We're just getting ready for Easter. We're just looking each week at something out of the life of Jesus, some type of conversation he had, some type of event that he had, sometimes encouraging, sometimes challenging. And the story we get to today, what I hope is that you see the why, the why behind Jesus and how he seems to have this focus concerned about the intersection of wealth and money and our life. So let's start with that. Luke chapter 18, verse number 18 is where we're going to be. And it says this. A certain ruler asked him, Good teacher, 
What must you do to inherit eternal life? So he asked this question, hey, what do I need to do in order to have eternal life? And Jesus immediately responds, I bet this guy went like, okay, that's, that's okay, whatever, but answer my question. Because Jesus' response seems to be not a part of the question at all. Jesus responded, verse 19, why do you call me good? Jesus answered, no one is good except God alone. Uh, guys, okay, that's great. I mean, I, okay, I called you good teacher. I didn't know that was a big deal, but just answer my question. Well, what we're going to find in a minute, that that statement that Jesus said when he says, why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. That is actually the answer to the question that the man is really asking. And I'll show you what I mean, but let's go on to verse number 20. He says this in verse 20. The guy says, what do I have to do to earn the, uh, inherit the kingdom? You know, inherit eternal life. And Jesus, verse 20, says this. Uh, you know the commandments. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not murder. You shall not steal. You shall not give false testimony. Honor your father and mother. And the man said this. And all these things I've kept since I was a boy, he said. So this guy's feeling pretty good about himself. He was, if you read the story, he was a very wealthy man. And, and he's, he's asking, he's looking at his life and his behavior what he does, and he says this, hey, what do I need to do? In other words, how, how, how do I measure up? He's asking himself, how do I measure up in order to have eternal life? What, what, what do I have to do to have enough goodness to gain God's approval to where I will have eternal life? And so he, what he's trying to do in that, what do I need to do in order to have eternal life? He's just trying to decide, how good do I have to be to be good enough to have this eternal life? It's a performance-based question, if you think about it. And, and I think the reason he asked this is the reason why we would ask it too. Because in pretty much every arena and every relationship of our life, we ask performance-based questions. Because our success in those arenas come back to our performance, right? Right? I mean, we look at a class, and we think, what do I need to do in order to pass the class? Or we're looking up signing up to, for a class. We're like, man, do I have what it takes in order to survive this class or make a good grade in this class? What do I need to do to pass this class? Or in our career, we are, we're always asking ourselves performance-based questions. What do I need to do to get that job? What do I need to do to get that promotion? What do I need to do to get that raise? What do I need to do? In relationships, what do I need to do to have him notice me? What do I have to do to have her notice me? And so in just about every arena of our life, we're constantly asking these performance-based questions because our success in those arenas are, are largely, whether it's work or relationships, it largely comes back to our performance. And so performance is just something that we're constantly involved in and we're constantly evaluating, we're constantly looking at. And so naturally, this guy does what we do a lot of times, and that is he transfers that, which he does on a daily basis, he transfers it over into a relationship with God. And so he looks at him and says, what do I need to do? What, is, what, what performance do I need to uh, acquire to or attain in order to have eternal life? And, and Jesus, as he often does, he kind of plays along a little bit. And he begins to give him some things that God has asked us to do. And he says, you need this. Honor your father and mother. Do, my, do not commit adultery. List all these things. And this guy's like, I've done that. I've done that. I've done that. I've, in fact, I've not only done, done them, but I've done them since I was a little kid. So you kind of can see what's going on in this guy's mind. Mentally, he has this kind of scale going on. And he's trying to figure out 
how much goodness he has to have in order to outweigh any sin or negative things in his life. He's trying to figure out where's the, where is it, not just where's the balance, but where is it that my goodness outweighs my badness so that it's hefty, so that I will then reach the bar, reach the standard in order to be good enough. And of course, the reason he's doing that is, is partly, this, again, what we do. And that is this, there's, there's something in him, there's something in you and me that wants to believe that the goodness that we do in life will be rewarded, right? And here's why. We look around our life every single day and we see people who are not doing things that are good. In other words, people who are not making good moral choices, people who are not making good ethical choices, people who, who, don't, who don't do well with their words that come out of their mouth, people who hold bitterness instead of give forgiveness. You know, we just see all these people... And, and isn't that true that we look back and we go, that's an easier way to live, right? It's an easier way to live just to kind of do what you want, what you feel in the moment. It's harder to do what is right and good. And we look at our life and we see the sacrifices we make not to do some things that maybe we want to do, but we know are not the right thing to do and delay some other things in our life and, and look here and work on forgiving that person instead of just being resentful. That's hard. And there's sacrifices internally and maybe externally in our life that we have to constantly make in order to do what is good and right. And we look at the people who are not making those choices and it seems like they have a much easier life. And because of that, we want to think that somewhere down the line, our good action and our good choices in life will be rewarded. And so we're thinking, you know, we want to make sure we have enough good stuff because one day we believe it will be rewarded and hopefully reward will be it will cancel out all the negative in our life. And it just makes us feel better in doing what is right. It makes us feel better about making the sacrifice if, we, if we're convinced somewhere down the line that it will be rewarded. And so we want to know how much good, because we believe our, surely our goodness will, will be rewarded, it will cancel out our goodness. So how much good do we have to have? And the truth is, somewhere down the line, your good choices will be rewarded. They may be rewarded in the sense of, uh, in this lifetime, I look back over my life and I can see where some of the good choices in my life, they benefited me. I didn't see that in the moment. It seemed like it would make more sacrifice than benefit, but I see that. And then I also, on the negative side, see some of the negative choices in my life, how they didn't benefit me, and I thought it was easy and good. And, and so I, this lifetime, sometimes I see that, and sometimes it may not be toward heaven. But, but this guy is asking kind of a different question, not just will it be rewarded, but that's his motivation. But what he's asking is this, Jesus, how good do I have to be? Because I believe my good, I hope that my good will be rewarded and that will cancel out my bad. But how much good do I have to have in order to reach the standard that God uses? To accept me, to accept someone, how good do I have to be? How good is good enough? And what he doesn't realize, that that's the real question he's asking. And what he doesn't realize is Jesus answered the real question when he asked, asked his initial question. When he says, what do I have to do to have eternal life? What he's really asking is, how good do I have to be to be good enough to have eternal life? And Jesus' made a response is, why do you call me good? There is no one good except God alone. Jesus answered his real question. And he said this, hey, you know what the answer is to your question? Your real question is, how good is good enough? Here's the answer is, you'll never be good enough. You are not good enough and you will never be good enough. To on your own merit, to on your own goodness, to acquire the level, the standard that is needed, to be in right standing with God and have 
out of that eternal life. It's maybe put a little more pungently in, in another story that Jesus tells. In, in Luke chapter 16, he tells a story about, he kind of paints a picture about someone who, is, who has sin in their life and, and, and that that sin causes a, a gulf, a chasm, if you will, between God and Jesus and the Father and those who are with God, and that is set. And then and that the, even the lightest, the, the simplest of sin creates a massive separation between God and what is right and good in heaven and the person with sin. In fact, this is how it's said in Luke chapter 16, verse 26. And beside all this, between us, Jesus, God, the Spirit, heaven, between us and you, the one with sin, a great chasm has been set in place. So those who want to go from here to you cannot, nor can anyone cross over from there. In other words, he's saying, you know, it's not about a good-bad ratio and making sure that your good outweighs your bad. It's not about it at all. It, it, the, it's about the, the personal goodness in your life that you may have is never going to be enough to enable you to span the separation or the chasm that is created between just one act of sin and the presence of a holy, perfect God, which is what heaven is. The separation is just too great. Yeah, there's some people who have more personal goodness than others, but the separation caused by just one sinful act is so great that even the the greatest of goodness within someone is not enough to, to come over that chasm. I relate it like this. We could have the entire population of our country stand on the coast of California. And within that group of people, there are going to be people on all different scales of, uh, of athleticism. Some, there will be Olympic gold medalists in that group that, could, that, that bodies are in fine, perfect tune. And there will be those that are out of shape, maybe some that are handicapped and such. There will be all different kinds of people on different levels of athletic ability within that group, but no one, and surely we get into the water and say swim to Hawaii. Yeah, some people can go further, but no one within that group has the capacity and the internal strength to swim themselves all the way to Hawaii because what is needed, the, the, the ability, the strength, the, the athleticism that is needed to go from the California coast to the Hawaiian islands is it's far greater than any one human being has, though there's some more athletic than others the same thing when it comes to our goodness and the goodness needed to span the difference between where we are and what we need to be in order to have a right standing with God. This is why the cross is so central and necessary to knowing God and to eternal life. Because without Christ's sacrifice on the cross, I am doomed. I am just as doomed as the most evil person upon the earth. Because no matter how good I am, and no matter how good I am in comparison to those who are not, I will never be good enough. And here's what Jesus did. On the cross, Jesus did for me what what I could not do for myself. Jesus got me 
to where I could not get myself. He got me to a place of full acceptance and eternal security found in the loving embrace of a holy God. And when I say yes to the cross, and while the cross will always be central to our faith, because it is a reminder that I will never, I was never good enough. But in Christ's sacrifice on the cross, He allowed me to cross a chasm that on my own, He took me across that chasm that on my own, I could never cross. That's why I love Him. That's why I follow Him. And that's why I worship Him. Now, that's one thing Jesus is saying here. That the cross is central to our faith. Not our goodness and our own performance, but the cross is central to our faith. But there's something else going on here. Jesus' stories and challenges and conversations often had multiple things happening, and this is one as well. So this guy... He's very, very wealthy. He does what we have a tendency to do. He says, what, how good do I have to be? And Jesus lifts off, you know, plays the game a little bit with him, lifts off five things. Don't do this and do this and do that and do this. He's like, I've done all that. Done it since I was a kid. And then Jesus gives him one more thing. If you read the story, Jesus goes on and says, okay, here's what I want you to do. I want you to go out and I want you to be a generous person. That's not what he said. That made sense to us a little bit. That's something he's very wealthy, ought to be generous, right? Share the wealth a little bit. That makes sense. He didn't say that. He looks at Jesus, I mean, he looks, Jesus looks at this guy and he says, here's what I want you. I want you to go out and I want, to give you, I want you to give all your wealth away. I mean, why did he go there? He only listed five things. It's not like he exhausted all the things that God has called us to do in order to what is right and good. He's just down to number six here. So, and, and now, all of a sudden, he lists not just to be generous, but he goes out and says, and give it all away to a rich man. I mean, let's be honest, that, that seems a little extreme. Seems a little out there on the edge. Why would Jesus tell him to give all his money away? Again, is it that Jesus really hates money? He hates wealth? No. What's going on here is this. Is Jesus knows something that is true about all of us. Something that a lot of times we don't get, and maybe we don't see, maybe we just ignore, but he knows something that is true about every single one of us, and that is this. We are always, we are always looking to lean into something or to someone to give us hope. We always are. Right now, you're leaning in to something or someone for your source of hope. And if not, if you don't have it, you're looking for something. A lot of times when we have... Uh, dissatisfaction in our life is because what we, we don't feel like we have anything that we're leaning into that's giving us a real sense of hope in life. Because we're always, always looking to find something or someone to give us hope. And we're going to lean into those things. There's an old saying that says, you can live three weeks without food. You can leave, live, uh, live three uh, days without water. You can live three minutes without air, but you cannot live a second without Hope, when we lose hope, we lose life. We lose the will to live. We're, so we are constantly looking for something or someone to give us hope. And we lean into that thing. And here's the thing. I can't explain why this is, but it was true in Jesus' day and it's true today. And that is the number one thing. And it may not be true for everybody, but it's true for 95% of us or more. 
That is, the number one thing that we have a tendency to lean into for hope, for security, for peace, for life, is not Christ. Even as Christians, we struggle with this. It is our money and our wealth. And you, you say, well, I don't have any. It's either the money and wealth we have, or it is the belief that if I could just get a little bit more, then I will have more, I will have more security. I will, my life will, uh, will have more peace and stability in it. There is just something in that. And I don't know what it is about our character and our nature, but the number one competitor that Jesus has for leaning into for hope is our money and wealth. We just have this tendency to, to move even away from God, though God is constantly calling us to lean into him. We just have this tendency to have to want to lean into our money, to lean into wealth, or lean into our thought that if I had just a little more money and wealth, then my life will be secure, my life will have peace. In other words, that is what we are leaning into for hope. Jesus' statement with this guy is not so much about money, it's about money only because money is the place that he's leaning into for hope. That he's leaning into. And he wants his money and wealth to provide for him that which Jesus knows that only Christ can provide. A life, no matter what's going on, no matter whether you have money or not, whether you have peace or chaos a life will have hope in all those situations only comes when we're leaning into christ for our source of hope we can believe in christ and still be leaning into other things for our sense of hope the reason jesus tells him to give his wealth away is because jesus understands something He's trying to make a pungent, shocking point. He goes, and he doesn't say be more generous. He said, why? You may ask, why does he go to the extreme? Why does he go and say, hey, you need to give some of your money away because that's where you're putting your hope. And it is true. One of the reasons God tells us to give and be generous with our money and give uh, regularly is because we have a tendency that we will not give away things that we put our hope in. And so if you really are reluctant to be generous, let me tell you something. It's not because you don't have money. You can get a whole lot of money, you'll still be, I tell you. I know people who are rich or poor. I know people who are poor that became extremely rich. And the ones who are generous when they're poor, they are generous when they're rich. The ones who, the people who were not generous when they're poor are not generous when they're rich. It's not an issue of that. It's about where you put your hope. And so that's why God tells us give, because you will not give away things that you've put your hope in. You won't. And so that's a good way to keep you from putting your hope in money and wealth. But why didn't Jesus tell him to do that? Because again, Jesus understands something that he wants us to understand and this man did not. And that is this. Your money and stuff cannot hold the weight of your need for hope. It just can't. And that there is a day that's coming. If you lean into your wealth, you lean into your wanting of wealth, if that's where you lean mainly into for your hope and your sense of security and peace in life, there is a day coming that it will fail you because it cannot sustain the weight of your need for hope. And one day it will fail you. Even if you get a lot of it, it will fail you and your world will come crashing in. If money and wealth 
is all you needed for hope that Hollywood would be the most hopeful place. The rich and powerful will be the most hopeful people. But just pick up the news. And you'll find that's not the case because there's a day coming when you make that the primary place that you lean into for your hope. There's a day in which it will not be able to sustain the weight of your need for hope and it will fail you and it will come crashing in on you. But here's what Jesus knows. Is that it's just so incredibly intoxicating. There is just something so intoxicating about money and wealth or the idea of having more money and wealth. That when you do begin to lean into it for your sense of hope, for your sense of security and peace, when you begin to lean in it for hope, it becomes incredibly difficult to change. And it's why Jesus said this to the rich young ruler at the very end or after, at the, after the conclusion of the story. He said this down in verse 25. He says, indeed, it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for someone who is rich to enter the kingdom of God. It is not a statement of Jesus' ill will toward wealth. It is a statement of what happens because wealth and money or the desire for it is so incredibly intoxicating. And we see that happening in this man's life. Look up back at verse 23. He said, when he heard this, he became very sad because he was very wealthy. The reason Jesus seems so extreme is because Jesus understood where this guy had come and he understands what happens. And again, I can't explain it. I don't understand it. But there is something so intoxicating about wealth and money and or the desire for more wealth and money that it just lures us to lean into it. Even if we believe in Christ, we have a, there's just this lure, this intoxicating effect that once we start leaning in that direction, we just lean more and more and more to arresting our hope in our money and wealth or the desire for more of it. And not only is there a coming day that it will fail you, what Jesus understands is that once you begin leaning in that direction, it is very, very, very difficult then to take that and change what you're leaning into hope back toward Christ. He says, because it is so very difficult, that is why it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than it is for a rich man to get into heaven. It's not that Jesus is against wealth. And why he constantly says, if you're wealthy, you've got to be careful. If you're wealthy, you've got to be careful. If you're wealthy, you've got to be careful. If you have money or you don't have money, generosity needs to be a part of your life because here's what I understand. And I'm beating the drum as hard as I can, even if it annoys you. Is that once you start leaning into it, unlike other things that you may lean into for hope more than Christ, they're not good, but... It just seems that it's easier then to make the shift and say, I'm not going to put my hope in that person. I'm, not going to, I'm going to put my hope in Christ. Once you begin to lean your hope and lean into money and wealth for your hope, it just becomes incredibly difficult to change that. And so then you set yourself on a path that one day your money and wealth will fail you and your hope will be gone. And if you don't have hope, you don't have life. So let me challenge you this morning. 
Let me challenge you to look deep inside your heart and ask. And I pray you will be as honest with yourself as you can. Ask yourself, where have I put my hope? What am I leaning into? Who am I leaning into for hope? And I tell you, if we're honest, some of us would discover that it's a person. We're dating someone or we're married to someone, we're in a relationship with someone, and we are leaning into them for our hope, for our security, for our life. Let me tell you something. That is so incredibly unfair to that person because they are not responsible for your hope. They are not responsible to generate and sustain your hope. It is unfair to put the weight of your need for hope on them. Not only that, it is negative to the relationship. It's putting a weight on the relationship that it should not be. Maybe it's not there. Maybe it's in your talent or ability. You're just putting all your hope in that. It will give your life the the strength and stability and the peace and the hope that you want. Maybe it's position. Maybe it's influence. Maybe it's career success. Maybe it is money and wealth. Whether you have it or it is the desire for it. Here's the thing. These things will not sustain or maintain the weight of your need for hope. And the reason Jesus is so dramatic about it here is because of the same concern that I have for myself and for us is that so often we don't realize that we have leaned into the wrong thing for our hope until it is unable to sustain the weight of our need for hope and it all comes crashing down. You see, Jesus is a fierce competitor. And just watch March Madness this week. Watch those games that are uh, the games that will be the highlighted games because more than likely the reason they're highlighted games is because some one team at least is a fierce competitor. And I tell you what fierce competitors do. They focus in and they attack their competitor. They attack the, their opponent. They go all in, focused on their opponent. And that's exactly what Jesus does in Scripture. When he looks down and he sees what competes with him for the, for the place where we look at hope, he sees that as an opponent and he attacks it. Jesus is not against money and wealth. He's against you putting your hope for life in the wrong place. And because he is a competitor and he wants your heart, He wants to be the source of your hope. He will constantly be challenging you on your view of money and constantly in Scripture challenging you to value generosity because that is the one thing that helps us keep an eye on making sure that our money and wealth stays in its proper place. It is not about money and wealth. It is all about building a life, a sustained hope. Hope is found. Hope is found only when we consistently lean into Jesus Christ. And we have to work on that because there's constantly other things that are saying, put your hope in me, put your hope in me, put your hope in me. And because of this, I believe that the anthem, the song that should be the anthem of our life it's not some new, which is fine, some new worship song. There are great ones out there. But really, the song that should be the anthem of our life is a very old hymn 
It goes like this. My hope, my hope is built on nothing less than Jesus Christ, my righteousness. I dare not trust the sweetest frame, but wholly lean on Jesus' name. On Christ, the solid rock, I stand. All other ground is sinking sand. All other ground is sinking sand. When darkness veils His lovely face, I rest on His unchanging grace. In every high and stormy gale, my anchor holds within the veil. His oath, His covenant, His blood, support me in the whelming flood. When all around my soul gives way, He then is all my hope and stay. When He shall come with trumpet sound, oh, may I in Him be found. In Him my righteousness alone, faultless to stand before the throne. On Christ, the solid rock I stand. All other ground is sinking sand. All other ground is sinking sand.